listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, this is becoming a trendy topic, a popular topic, a topic that people have concerns about, whereas previously it used to only sort of worry the, uh, what do you call them, sort of, I guess, professionals, noggins, whatever, people that are it, and they're warning us for what was happening, but now it's gone mainstream, I guess. We are talking about New Zealand schooling system, and in particular the curriculum, what our children and grandchildren are being taught. And we're very lucky to have uh, with us Dr. Michael Johnson from the New Zealand Initiative. You remember we have done interviews with Dr. Bryce Wilkinson. We've done interviews with Dr. Oliver Hartwich. Got to be a doctor to be there, obviously. <laughs> um, and now we have got Dr. Michael Johnson, who is new to us. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Great to now, be here. Great. Now, you've got kids too, right, in the school system. I do, yes. I've got a couple of daughters who are in primary school at the moment. So you have uh, not only a professional interest, but a personal interest in this. Absolutely. Now, you aren't a person coming at this with an axe to grind or with an amateur interest or without having direct experience of the curriculum and education, are you? You actually have quite a background. Yes, I'm a cognitive psychologist by training, and that, that's a scientific discipline. So I can speak with a bit of knowledge on what a science curriculum should look like in, in broad terms. Can I just like, stop you there? Yeah. I know there's more, but I just, you caught me with cognitive. Cognitive psychology. psychology. So cognitive psychology is the science of human information processing. So it's oh, yes. the study of our memory systems, our attention, our perception, this kind of thing. And actually, it, uh, has quite a lot to say about how we learn. So it does actually uh, have bearing on the question of schooling and how especially yeah, teaching absolutely. should occur in, in classrooms. But and, I, I was also at the university, at Victoria University, for 10 years in, in the education faculty, and I've done a, a bit of work on curriculum design and so on in that role. And so where did you do your PhD? That was at Melbourne University. Mm. More, more year, years ago than I care to count now. Yes. And uh, if it's not rude, what was your PhD thesis on? Uh, quite an obscure topic, as many of course they always are. tend to the, be. So the, more obscure, the more obscure the topic, right, yeah, the more yeah. serious you are. So what I was, uh, was studying was how we recognise objects in three dimensions when they're rotated. So if you think of uh, an everyday object and how it can be rotated in, in three dimensions, the, the way it projects onto your visual system changes as it rotates, right? The, yes. the two-dimensional projection of it is different. And so the question is how we recovered the information to recognize it as the same object when it's being rotated like that. Because if it – yes, because do you see it rotate or do you just see it at two different – well, if you see it from a new point of view, how do you recognise it? So I was yeah, interested in how we can recognise an object from a point of view from which we've never seen it before. So if you're interested, what I did was to uh, make objects out of computer graphics that were just kind of abstract shapes, and then I'd teach people to recognise them from one point of view, and then I'd show them from different points of view and with different degrees of rotation, measure the accuracy and the amount of time that people took to recognise them. It's so interesting, psychology, because um, two things about me. I thought until very, very recently, like only in the last couple of years, I just thought everyone interpreted and saw the world as I did because, you know, it's a world and here's me looking at it. And I could never understand how people could disagree, you know, hmm. be looking at the same thing or doing the same facts and reach a different conclusion. And you suddenly realize that there's a, a, a psychology of how you understand the world is extremely important. And then yep. the next thing that I came to realize is that we have different abilities. And it's not just that I'm stupid because I get lost. If I, 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 I've lived where I live now for three years, if you, if I, 
you put me in a car and I drive around the block, I could be lost. And my wife and daughter unerringly know where we are, right? But to me, if it looks slightly different, I'm totally lost. And then the next thing I've realized, I've spent more time with my young children at primary school, helping them learn things. And then you realize that we learn differently. I never appreciated any of that. I just thought we were like little clones of each other. Yeah, well, we're not clones, but I wouldn't like to overstate how different we are. Okay. I, I mean, one of the things that's important in education is to realize that we all have the same memory systems. We all have the same yes. perceptual systems. I mean, people can have disabilities, of course, that, you know, some people are blind and so on. But in the end, um, you know, if you've got normally functioning eyes and ears and uh, and brain and so on, then actually the way we learn is remarkably similar. Okay. It's true that people learn at different rates and people have different strengths and weaknesses, yes. but the systems are the same. So if, for example, you take learning to read, so this is something that's been debated for many years, that in fact, yes. so hotly, they call it the reading wars. Yeah. Uh, but actually, the, the scientific evidence is pretty clear that a structured literacy approach is the most effective for everyone. That doesn't mean that everyone will learn at the same rate, Got it. but nobody is disadvantaged by structured literacy. And actually, people with dyslexia and, and conditions like that will learn to read better using structured literacy than any other approach. What and that's because we have the we all have the ability to uh, process visual information. That's the letters on the page, and to learn the alphabetic code. That is how we the the, the letters relate to sound. And when you're first starting out, the most effective way is to learn those mappings between spelling and sound, and that gives you access to about seventy percent of your English vocabulary. If you happen to be learning to read in Tereo Māori, it gives you access to 100% because the, the mappings are perfect. In English, they're a, a little less than perfect. So there are words that you just have to learn later. But the, oh, uh, Because Tereo, the language developed, the written language developed in one go. Yeah, well, it, was, it, it didn't yeah. have a, a written system before, before the, yeah. um, the colonists showed up. So, yeah. yeah. Tell me, when you say structured literacy, yeah. What does that mean compared to the alternative? Well, structured literacy just literally means learning in, in, a, in an ordered and structured way. But in practice, it means that we start by learning those uh, connections between spelling and sound. And that gives kids an immense head start with reading. They've got to learn about 40 of them. And then they've got access to most of the words they know. Mm. Uh, the alternative approach uh, well, some, sometimes it's called whole language, sometimes it's called a balanced approach. And that's where you get kids to concentrate on maybe the context of the word and the sentence, maybe look at the pictures, maybe look at the first and last letters and, and have a bit of a about? guess about what the word is. <laughs> what was that about? Well, it was very popular for a long time. And in part, that's because, you know, Dame Māori Clay, who was yes. uh, a New oh. Zealander, she started re reading recovery. That was the kind of system that that she went for, and because she became so famous, I think it, it really became almost a sacred cow in New Zealand education. But it's starting to change now. Uh, a great many schools are shifting to a structured approach and seeing seeing the results improve markedly. Yeah, well, I know my son, who's older son, who's thirty four, I guess. Yeah. He learned at school whole a word, and it was like having them guess. It was like trying to learn Chinese. Yeah. Well, it kind and, of is because in Chinese, yeah. you know, you've got the characters that stand yes. for the whole word. So that's kind yes. of how you have to learn. Although I think they do have some phonological markers in their language. I'm not yeah. an expert on Chinese, but yeah. And I, I, we had to end up teaching him to read at home and telling because he went into reading recovery. He could read when he went off to school, loved yeah. reading. After six months of that whole word stuff, he would throw a book across the room. Yeah. And we ended up teaching him what you call the structured way. We didn't know. We just got some old textbooks. And we had to tell him not to say anything at the school because we're doing it wrong. And now when I went to my local primary school and said, oh, I'm so pleased you're not doing that whole word stuff, the young teachers look at me and don't know what I'm talking about. They, they're all using the phonics approach now, are they? Yeah. Yeah, that's good to know. Yeah, no. You know, I mean, getting, uh, uh, getting kids to guess words is terrible for them. If yeah, they get into that habit, it means yeah. that 
you know, when they're older and they're encountering more complex tests, texts, they're at sea. They don't know what to do. Mm. Well, I had, a lovely, I, had a lo- I had a lovely time where they called for volunteers and I, I agreed to it and I'd go in once a week. I, I, I would have done more if they'd asked. And I'd do it again if they asked again, but I don't know. They haven't after because of COVID. But I would sit with kids who were struggling a little bit and I'd do literally 10 minutes before school and I'd do two kids each week. And I was amazed how quickly, six weeks literally of that, and they're away. It's phenomenal, isn't it? A little bit every day. It's phenomenal. That's right. Doesn't have to be a long time every day, but it's got to be regular. That's the thing. And 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 it's your point is that there's those forty sounds, forty, 40 odd mappings between spelling and sound. So there's obviously ind- individual letters like P maps onto P and T to T and so on. But then we've got digraphs like CH CH and SH CH and so on. Um, so interesting. The, yeah, it's not letter by letter, but it's it's some individual letters mapping to individual sounds, mm. and sometimes more than one letter. So you got the PhD, and then you went to Victoria University. Actually, where... there was a stint at NZQA in there in between. Oh, so okay. I, I, I was six years at NZQA, uh, and interestingly, I started there. I've never, I'd never been in the public service before, and I think I can say I never will be again. But it was an interesting time to arrive because this was early two thousand and five, and this was just at the point where there was a massive crisis in the early NCEA system, where there was huge inconsistency in the in the marking of exams between one year and the next and between different subjects. And it was a huge political storm. The chief executive had to resign and then the board chair resigned and the board was cleaned out and the State Services Commission wrote a couple of damning reports and then the whole organisation was restructured. And after that, it was actually in some ways the making of my career because uh, Barley Hark was appointed as deputy chief executive, and he came in with a brief to make some big changes to the technical aspects of NCA. And um, they, my my skills as as a statist- on the statistical side were um, were suddenly much in demand. So mm. I quickly became a psychometrician, which is somebody who um, is expert in in psychological measurement, which is what exams are. They're a, a way of measuring what people know. Um, and so we did a lot of work on the exam marking, on the moderation of internal assessment and so on over the next six years. And after that, I'd had enough of the public service and I, I got the job at Victoria. And at Victoria, you did what? Well, I was a, a senior lecturer in education and I, I focused on educational assessment, um, on using data from educational assessment to improve teaching and to give good feedback to to kids and so on. So that that was my my area of specialty in that role. And I we'll get on to them. we'll get on to this, no doubt. You're going to be a great resource because we take it. When I say we, I mean sort of we everyone, that data and assessment is the essence of going to school to see how things are getting on. It's not the it's not the point, but you've got to measure. Well, yeah, I mean, a, there's that. That's there's an that, ideological thing now, right? There's that saying that you you don't you don't make the pig heavier by weighing it, but but of course, if you want the pig to get heavier, it helps to weigh it so you yes. know to feed it more, uh, yes. or whatever. So I think that that's a, a kind of bad argument against educational measurement. I think you do have to know Absolutely. where kids are at in order to see Absolutely. who needs the more help and who needs to be advanced and so on. And I noticed that with everything that kids do, that they love the feedback. Oh, of course. You know, you go, right. to, you go to Cub Scouts and you love it that you got that badge. Yeah. And you put it on your shoulder lapel and you've got, the, you know, you've got your knots badge and you're very proud that you've got it and other kids don't have their knots badge and you don't get your knots badge just by turning up. Yeah, so there's a couple of things there. Look, you know, it's nice to get rewards like badges and certificates and prizes and so on, but actually the real reward is learning itself. And Mm. feedback, Mm. you know, you you can say that getting an A-plus or a badge or whatever is a sort of feedback, but it's pretty blunt feedback. It doesn't give you any information other than you did well. But the most valuable feedback is actually 
what you haven't got right yet because that allows you to improve and and to know what you need to do to improve. So rather than giving out lots of high grades and lots of badges and so on, I'd, I'd much rather teachers focused on where the child is because they've measured to know where the child is and then to give them good specific feedback about what they need to do to to keep learning and to and to improve and not to lie to them oh no that's a that that's a uh that's child abuse if you do that yes but you can lie to them by saying oh no you're doing great you're doing great yeah no that's that's a terrible strategy uh, and of course you shouldn't talk them down you you've got to talk up their ability to mm-hmm. to learn more but you shouldn't uh overplay where they're at either it's important to I mean, you, you needn't compare them with one another. The main thing is, what do you need to do to take the next step? Hmm. And now you left the university to go to the, are you at the New Zealand Initiative now full-time? Yes, I am. I've been here full-time for about a year, um, and I started part-time 18 months ago. It's a big step, is it not? I so suppose so. I, I mean, University to a think tank? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's similar. I'm I, I'm working in the same kind of area, although the brief here is broader. Uh, I write reports on all different aspects of the school system. Uh, so far, I've done one on modern learning environments, these big open plan classrooms, and I, I've done another very broad ranging one on quite a lot of aspects of the education system from curriculum to uh, assessment and uh, how we organise schools and, and so on. Uh, I'm just finishing up one now with our, our adjunct fellow, Stephanie Martin, on teacher training. So that's wow. the next one off the blocks. Wow. Yeah. But it's, it, well, it is a bit different. But look, you know, the university isn't what it used to be. I've been around universities all my life and not, it's not the place I signed up to to be part of anymore for, for, for a number of reasons. I think it's it's become... Uh, quite politically stultified. It's quite hard to have a dissenting opinion there. I'm somebody who tends to say what he thinks, but um, other people feel quite shut down there. And that to me is the opposite of what a university ought to be. You know, we've we've had some polls run by uh, the taxpayer, not the taxpayers union, the free speech union, and also the heterodox academy, which is a group of academics we want to defend academic freedom, and they tend to show that quite a lot of academics who have dissenting views are, are scared to voice them, and that to me is anathema for, at a university. It should be a place where ideas are freely contested, but that is no longer the case, and obviously we've all seen recently you know, massive financial problems in the universities that are resulting in people losing their jobs, so it's not, it's not a terribly happy place anymore to me. No. And um, I remember years ago reading a book by a a philosopher that I hugely loved called W.W. Bartley III, which was a wonderful name. He passed away, sadly, of AIDS. Um, He was a student of Karl Popper in the 50s and 60s and resurrected some of his work. And they had a big falling out and then got back together. It's a great story in of itself. But he wrote a book, and I think it was called Unfathomed knowledge, unimagined wealth, or something like that. And it was a book that shocked me because it was on the universities. And it explained how the university was actually a medieval organization. Or Originally, yes. The, some of the universities like Notre Dame and in, in yeah. Paris, they, they started up in the Middle Ages and they were quasi-monastic organizations at, yes. at first. Yeah. And, how, and this was written, I guess, in the 90s or late 80s. And how his problem was that they were set up on a guild-type basis, that this was, you know, this is sociology or this is physics or this is chemistry, and and you subdivided and subdivided and subdivided and subdivided the institution and you didn't get out of your lane. Mm -hmm. And his argument was that sort of like a complete misunderstanding of knowledge. Um, yeah. because as we classically think of it, and of course now I observe from the outside only universities, and they're even more medieval and monastic in the sense that you've got to say the catechism. Yes, there's a bit of that. Uh, but look, I, I would defend the division of knowledge into different yes. disciplines. I, I think that 
different disciplines have different methods. You know, physics is not history. It's great to have wide-ranging knowledge, and and certainly scholars should work together across disciplinary boundaries. But really, to become a master of a discipline is a lifetime's work, and and unless you're a, a very great genius, you, you're not going to be a master of more than one. So I think specialization is important. Of course. You and I are going to have to park that one and come back to it one day because mm-hmm. um, I'm interested in that idea because um, I guess this is a Karl Popper in me because I think uh, they do have the same method at root, but we won't argue it because uh, I'll just park that I, I, I note that and we'll move sure. on. Because, I'm a big fan of Popper as well, by the way. Uh, well, his political but, philosophy as well as his scientific philosophy. Me too. Yeah. Me too. And I think we – well, in which case you're even more upset mm. about what's happening in the curriculum. I'm, because, I'm, very, I'm very upset about the, what the ministry seem to want to do to science. Yeah. Yes. because And not only are you destroying science and knowledge, you're destroying Western civilization. Or enlighten the enlightenment because it all goes. I think the enlightenment civilization is a good way to put it because I wouldn't yeah. like people to get the idea that it's exclusive to, you know, European cultures. Yes. I think I think enlightenment ideas uh, have yes. arisen, uh, well, certainly in Indian civilization um, yes. and at different times in other civilizations as well. But they're always in peril, and I think Popper actually taught us why that is. Oh, it's yeah. a very a very counterintuitive thing to have a, a democracy, to have a, a free contest of yes. ideas. Professor Rata has been on. You'll know her, no doubt. Oh, yes. And, and uh, she had a wonderful phrase. I'm trying to recollect it. I think it was universalist versus tribalist. Right. And the universalist idea was capturing what we loosely call um, Western civilization. And I concur with you heartily because – we used to understand and have a clear picture of Western civilization, something that arose with the Greeks and, and the Romans and uh, reached its uh, zenith following the Enlightenment and the Renaissance. But, of course, it's a loaded term now geographically, and you think of it in racist terms, whereas mm-hmm. universalist um, versus tribalist, or in Karl Popper's terms, um, the open society versus the closed society. That's right. Um, and Hayek had another phrase too, didn't he, um, where he would distinguish the two types of um, societies, one where, you know, oh, a face-to-face society versus an anonymous society, you know, where you yeah. sort of grow up in the tribe and you yeah. live in the tribe and that things like Nazism is a is a tribal philosophy. Very much so, a parochial where, one. Yeah. Yes, whereas you, you, a universalist society is where you agree to rules and yeah. you live by the rules, um, and it's anonymous, I think he used the phrase. Now, I do like Elizabeth Rata's distinction between universalist and tribalist. And, yes. and actually it does go to the question of science and science in our curriculum oh, and to much. a specific, specific point about what the ministry have promulgated in this draft curriculum that they've put around to teachers. Uh, to, to give them feedback on. So one of the things that it, it stipulates is that kids should learn science in the context of their local environment. Now, of course, there's there's nothing wrong with going and looking for the, you know, the the little life in your local pond or, or river or, or forest. That's a, that's a good idea. But really, science is a universalist discipline. It's looking for statements that are true everywhere and always. And so, you know, if you're thinking about chemistry, then oxygen is oxygen anywhere in the universe. It has the same properties and and gravity has the same properties everywhere in the universe. So in in science, we're looking for those universal explanations of phenomena. When I read your very short critique, I'm guessing from memory, it was a bit longer than the treaty, but not much. It was maybe seven to ten paragraphs. Yep. It was devastating. All you did, I think, and I was about to try to bring it up, but I'm going to get you to walk me through it because I can't do two things at once uh, in my head, um, was actually take the key, what, objectives or points of this new science curriculum. Yep. And every one of them, could not be more abhorrent 
to a person steeped in the love of knowledge, universalist principles, taupapa, science. And I was left at the end of reading your piece, Michael, wondering with these people had no concept of what science is Mm -hmm. or whether they do and they're out to destroy it. Well, I I couldn't answer that, but certainly in the curriculum document, there's no indication that they know what science is. And there's there's a fair amount of evidence that either they don't or they do and they're trying to wreck it. But, yes. um, you know, let's be charitable and assume the former. Well, we were very we were very ad- admiring in my interview of Oliver because he had a good Christian view and uh, accused his opponents of, you know, misunderstanding things. Whereas yeah. I'm, I could tend deeply into the bad actor faith. But let's go through those points if you have them in front of you because they're crucial. Each phrase and walk us through it, what they're saying, and what's wrong. Have you got them in front of you, Michael? No, but I, I can I can remember the, the key points. So okay. there are kind of two broad criticisms that I have, one relating to what isn't in the curriculum and the other relating to what is. Okay, so let's go through those two. What isn't, we, do, we see no mention of the term physics or chemistry anywhere in the whole document. How is and that possible? You simply don't write them, I guess. It's, uh, <laughs> it's simple in that sense. Uh, but, but how is it possible to design a, a, a curriculum for science without mention of physics or chemistry? I mean, that's such a good question. And, and it, the the concepts of chem- chemistry and physics are entirely absent as well. There's no mention of gravity or mass or acceleration or uh, optics or any of those things that we associate with physics. There's no mention of atoms or molecules or compounds or chemical reactions that we associate with chemistry. So those, the, those subdisciplines of science are completely missing in action in this document. So that, that that's in terms of what's missing. You know, another thing that's missing is anything about scientific methodology. Or, yes. Or, and that, that is actually, you know, as, as Popper would, I think, agree, the heart and soul of science. The heart and soul. The, the things that we know about chemicals and, and physics and th- these things, that's the, the products of the scientific method. Those are the theories that we've tested and in Popper's terms have failed to falsify. Uh, we don't prove them to be true. We just fail to prove them wrong. And if we fail and, to and, prove them wrong, despite trying very hard, then yeah. we take them to be a provisional truth, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that we don't care where the idea came from or how you got it, what we care about, whether it was rigorously and critically tested against the real world to see whether it hold up. And in particular, that your test is not to show it's true, Mm -hmm. but you're going out of your way. What would make me not believe this? What that's would right. make this false? And that's that that's the is, mindset of a scientist, right? That's there. the mindset of when a scientist. When I was an honor student at Monash University, I, I had a mentor. His name was Ken Forster, and he was a very accomplished scientist. And I was young and enthusiastic, and I had this idea that I liked very much. And, and <laughs> we've all said, done that. Michael, you're a scientist. Your job is to disprove that idea. Mm. And it was a, quite a moment for me. I, I was taken aback and I, th- I thought about it because I'd learned about Popper in my undergraduate studies and thought, oh, yes, that is my, my job. And and so then, you know, one designs experiments to try to disprove one's idea. And it's so it, counterintuitive and it's so it easily is, lost because of that. And it's, and, you, and it's your psychology and ego. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you know the great Popper story about Sir John Eccles? I don't think I do. So John Eccles was a researcher at the University of Otago during uh, the war years. And I say that because I know that's when Sir Karl Popper was lecturing at Canterbury University. And Sir John Eccles was beavering away working and the big debate at the time was how the messaging went across from one nerve cell 
to the next one. Mm -hmm. So when you send something to the brain or back from the brain to the arm or the leg, it goes down a series of nerve cells. The nerve cells don't touch each other. That's right. There's a little interval called the synapse. Correct. There's a small amount of a a neurotransmitter chemical that's emitted from one side and it... Correct. Well, the conventional wisdom wisdom was that the electrical charge jumped across the synapse. And Sir John Eccles had published on this and was working away on it being an electrical jump. Mm -hmm. And he travelled up to Canterbury University from Otago and sat, I believe, in one of Sir Karl Popper's lectures and went up to him as a young scientist, very, very concerned. <laughs> and Sir Karl Popper said, you know, I'm paraphrasing and mangling the story. He said, you know, well, what, do you, what do you think is wrong? You know, what, what, what's your problem? He said, look, I've been working for years on this. And he says, yes. And what's the problem? He says, I think I might be wrong. Hmm. And Sir Karl Popper got animated and said how exciting that was because some American researchers were suggesting that it was a chemical and uh, acetylcholinase uh, travels across and gets broken down. Oh, because you're a psychologist, you know this. (laughs) And and, um, Sir John Eccles, um, they designed talking a critical experiment. Yep. Right? Yep. Talking, because you, you can imagine that once you understand what Karl Popper's saying. Yeah. And so John Eccles went off to get a Nobel Prize. Yeah. In the chemical, uh, the uh, chemical transmission of neurotransmitters across the synapse. But anyway, the great thing is, he was travelling on a train. This is Sir John Eccles, and um, he overheard these two dons talking because he went to Oxford or Cambridge or somewhere flash, and they were talking about, oh, this. John Eccles fellow, you know, what's he like? Is he, you know, sound, as you can imagine English in the 50s saying? And we said, oh, yes, no, he's he's very sound, but he's a little odd. Hmm. And the guy said, yeah, in what way is a little odd? Well, he keeps running around trying to prove his theories wrong. Because yeah. <laughs> it is so counterintuitive, right? That's right. And it's, that's why a scientific uh, education is important for everyone, whether they're going to be a scientist or not. You know, I, I actually recently wrote a, a chapter for a book, which is actually being edited by Elizabeth Rata. Uh, oh, wonderful! On the similarities between science and democracy. Yes, because they have they have something profoundly in common, yes. which is that you have to have this contest of ideas. Yes, and that you want to test them. In the case of science, you test them with experiments and evidence. In the case of democracy, you, you test them by having an election every. Yes. Years and, and then yes. you kind of take the temperature of the electorate. And yes. what you buy with democracy is actually this incredible information processing network called people. Yes. Right? They, they discuss ideas. And if you've got an open society, as Popper put it, then the ideas can flow freely. And a lot of them will be, most of them will be wrong. Most of them will be silly. doesn't yes. matter. Through yes. the process of open argument and debate, and yes, you'll have some nasty stuff on the side and some horrible things said, but in the end, you'll get better ideas bubbling up to the surface than you will in an authoritarian society where people aren't allowed to say what they think. And that the success for Popper of a democracy is not that you get good government, but you can eliminate bad government. Yes, once again, it's that falsificationist idea. Yeah, and that you can get rid of a government without having to shed blood. Which is... Whereas uh, any. A very great advantage, yes. Very good. I I tell you a very interesting thing. Gosh, we should get back to the curriculum. But um, this is what this is the point, actually, of the curriculum, because it's a method. And if you don't learn the method, you can't think critically and you can't learn. That's right. And I read a what I've read. I read a lot about World War Two, and just interesting strategy and how it went, the way it went, and because it was world's greatest cataclysm. And one of the interesting things is how the Allies were a superior fighting force in so many ways because you couldn't treat a soldier as expendable and as a sergeant or a lieutenant, you sort of had to listen to them. Right. And so good ideas 
would percolate up. Not perfectly, right. because yeah. at the end of the day, it's the military and all the rest it's of it. Still but chain the, of command and so on. Yeah, but they would. Yeah, and and that the the commanders would actually listen to what the troops were saying and what was working. And of course, the technology was changing so fast, mm. and the strategy of war was changing so fast that the uh, Soviets, who ultimately became on our side, uh, and the Nazis, they couldn't respond. Yeah. Because it was a top-down model. Well, I think, um, you know, the, uh, Mr. Putin is having some problems in that regard in Ukraine yes. now. I think I think his military suffers from that problem. And, yes. and, and not only his military. I mean, I think that everybody was too scared to tell him invading Ukraine was a bad idea in the no, first place. exactly. And 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 <laughs> you saw that with Stalin. You don't wander and you don't yeah. stay being a general if you wander into his office and say, "Hey, you know that idea you had? I don't think it's a good one." Or you couldn't sit there as a military commander with Hitler and say no. Well, actually, I think I think in in that regard, Hitler was a slightly easier uh, master than Stalin. Yes. <laughs> I think Stalin would have people shot for disagreeing with him, whereas Hitler might shout at them. But in yeah. the end, he he didn't necessarily listen to his generals, but his no. generals did dare to argue with him. Yeah, and with Churchill, they would straight up refuse. Right, yes, yeah. And um, he wanted to stay on in the war, Yeah, and, the, and his commander said, you can't make these men stay longer. You know, yeah. to, to deal to Russia, and um, oh, yeah. oh, another yeah. another great one was he wanted he had he wanted plans drawn up if Britain was invaded to relocate the British army to Canada, right? Yeah, and the commanders pointed out that the men wouldn't go because mm. that's what happened in France. They got the men off the beaches at um, um, Dunkirk. And they went home because yeah. you wouldn't leave your family to the Nazis. No, no you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is why the <laughs> curriculum on science is so important. And what you're saying is not only is it not dealing with gravity, optics, um, atomic uh, structure, any of those concepts from physics and chemistry. Yeah. And it doesn't deal with what distinguishes science from all, all other sources of knowledge, which is... That's correct. It doesn't. Now, we might come on to what it does do. So yes. one, one of the things that they want to do is to teach all of science from the very beginning of primary school right through to year 13 through the lens of just a few topics, including things like biodiversity, climate change, infectious diseases. Now... The, is that, are they the ones... Uh, there's one other. Uh, there's four of them in total. Uh, oh, the other one is the food, water, energy nexus. So those are the four topics that kids are supposed to encounter again and again, year after year, as they progress through school. Now, I mean, there are multiple problems with this. First of all, it's going to get pretty boring just visiting the same topics again and again. When science gives us such a, an enormous vista of phenomena and interesting things we could be teaching them about, why do we want to keep them to these particular things year after year? So that's the first thing. The next thing is, without those basic concepts in science, the, the theory of atomic structure and mechanics and all the rest of it, you can't actually understand these topical things, right? How are you supposed to make any informed comment about, say, climate change if you don't know about how weather actually works and how uh, the physics of it unfolds and what carbon dioxide is for that matter? I mean, it's a very important thing to know that carbon dioxide is dense and that's why it causes, you know, global warming or whatever. So. Well, without these without these fundamental concepts, you can't understand the topics. So, well, of it's course, teachers may know that, and they may introduce these these fundamental concepts on an as needs basis. But that's very different to learning them properly and systematically from the from the ground up. They are topics too that are political slash ideologically heavy in their overtone. They, they're certainly given to activism, aren't they? Yes. 
And, and I mean, biodiversity yeah. isn't a scientific concept. Well, not as such, you're right. No. I mean, we could talk about ecology, we could talk about different species sure. and habitats and so on, but, but biodiversity itself is is not. I would agree with that. And And so you could be sitting there learning about all of science, which has no ideological or political claim. That's what's beautiful about it. Yes. And so some of the greatest physicists in the 20th century were Marxists. A Nobel Prize winner was a Muslim yes. who held his faith central to mm -hmm. his life and understanding. Some, many are Christians. They are Hindu yes. Nobel Prize winners in physics. And of course, a lot of Jewish people. Yes. Um, and they meet, all of them meet on science. That's right. And that's what makes it so extremely wonderful. Yes. It's it's a it's a kind of microcosm of liberal society in general, isn't it? Yes. You know, in a liberal society, in a truly liberal society, a classical liberal society. Yes. Not using the small L American yes. the, the word, but a, a truly liberal society. It's it's. I think it was Francis Fukuyama who said it's the it's kind of the largest sized tent you can have in yes. terms of all of the different beliefs that can exist within it in relative yes. harmony. Uh, yes. Now. Popper did talk about the the paradox of tolerance, which that's right. Uh, which which is, in these days is when I read about that, I thought, yeah. oh yeah, we'll never need that. Well, but, I mean, what he meant was that there is a maximum size for the tent. You mm. can't afford to have widespread ideas that are themselves anti-liberal, or mm. you'll lose the whole tent. Yes, and then you end up with authoritarianism again. Yes. Uh, having said that, he wasn't in favour of violent repression of those ideas. And no. my view of the matter is that all we can do as classical liberals, as people who value that big tent that we can all live in together, mm. is talk about things and argue and put the ideas out there. And hopefully, and there's a lot of hope involved, that uh, that will be enough to save uh, the, the liberal society. But, you know, history isn't very optimistic when it comes to the survival of liberal societies in the long term. There's a lovely little footnote, and I think it's an end note, the way Popper wrote The Open Society as Enemies, where he says that the open and democratic society that we strive towards, because this was written in the dark days of World War II. Yep. Um, is a very recent mm -hmm. and brief thing. Yep. And that it may not survive. Yeah. But well, think about it. How, you know, how long has, have we had universal suffrage for? I mean, New Zealand gave everybody yeah. the vote, in, including women and Māori, sometime in the late 19th century. We were the first country in the world to do that. Yes. And it's less than 150 years ago. Yes, so and it wasn't necessarily, and it wasn't that long ago that even in an enlightened society you could own someone. Quite right. Yes, yeah. Which is declaring people non-persons. Yeah, and property. And, uh, That's right. Uh, and wives being property. Yeah. Um, and it is. It is a phenomenally recent, and I think you and I would have grown up in our university years thinking it was so strong that it couldn't, it was unassailable. It was hard to imagine that it could be any other way, wasn't it? But, you know, we have to remember that, you know, you and I grew up in the recent memory of World War II, of the Holocaust, yes. of fascism, Nazism. Yes. Still at the time, there was Soviet communism dominating Eastern Europe. So there were plenty of reasons to hold fast to these liberal democratic ideas. Yes. And then, you know, 1990, the Berlin Wall fell and uh, the, the communist world fell apart. Uh, well, of course, you, you've still got China and, and some other very authoritarian countries, but it looked as if 
you know, again, Francis Fukuyama wrote of the end of history, that yes. liberal democracy had won. Yes. Uh, but it was optimistic. And then, you know, I think what's happened really is that now there's a generation who have grown up since the fall of communism. Uh, and it's getting on for a century since World War II. And these yes, things pass out of living true. memory, and then you know the the, the special character of liberal d- democracy starts to be forgotten. Yes, and my dad left school at fourteen. He was too young to go to World War Two, but he knew what it was about, and he was a truck driver, and he knew exactly what free speech was and why it was important. And also that things like freedom and free speech were worth fighting and dying for. Yeah. We now have a generation growing up who, oh, yeah, free speech is nice, but you wouldn't want to upset anyone. Yeah, well, that's (laughs) that's the trouble, isn't it? (laughs) And, you know, over there there are people who are so nasty that they don't deserve free speech. Right. And that's now what you'd call, I think, Michael, an educated view. Well, as Frederick Nietzsche put it, it's human, all too human to it's think all that too way. Human. It's, it's all it, too human. It's, it's, it's the natural way that people think, it, it, as Elizabeth Ryder says, you know, in this tribal way, these yes. people are like me, so... I like them and I'll protect them. But those people, they think the wrong thing, so yes. they, they should be shut down. And that's yeah. antithetical, to, uh, antithetical to democracy and liberal society. There so, was one thing that you highlighted. I think we did cover it. But it was this idea of local knowledge. Yeah, so that's the, the idea in the curriculum is that things should be contextualised in local uh, the local environment. And, you know, as I said, a certain amount of that, especially with primary school kids, is fine. They go and explore the local forests and they find leaves and they find insects and so on. That's all good stuff. It's it's lighting up their their curiosity and their, their exploratory instincts. So for younger kids, I'm, I'm all for that. But by the time they get to secondary school, they should be learning the universal theories of chemistry, physics, biology, evolution, gravitation, mm. chemical structure, and so on. And doesn't that make the world such a wonderful, beautifying, mysterious place? Well, I think if there's one thing that science tells us, it's that the universe is far, far stranger than you would ever think. Ever imagined. Ever, ever imagined. I mean, you think about Einstein, right, with the theory of relativity and the idea that, um, you know, the passage of time is different depending on your velocity. What yes. a counterintuitive idea that is. Yes. And yet we can measure it. You, yes. you put a highly sensitive clock on a, on a jumbo jet and fly it to London, but we're just very slightly different when it arrives to the one that, the, yes. that you set it to when it, when it, when it departed. Yes, and that uh, light is sort of a wave but sort of a particle. And kind of neither, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I love a great phrase about that, Max Planck was at some seminar. He was a great quantum physicist. And uh, someone was presenting a new theory. And, of course, this is when all these seemingly mad ideas were floating around. Mm. And um, someone gave a paper, and someone leaned across to Max Planck and said, do you think that could be true? And I think he said, I might be paraphrasing him incorrectly. He said something along the lines, no, no it's not mad enough. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, because, yeah. uh, you know, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, all this stuff. I think it was Feynman who said that if you if you think that you understand quantum mechanics, it means that you don't. Yes. <laughs> Yes, we got we're we're gonna we're getting carried away now. Paul, this is getting bored with us debating this, but it is it is this wonderful thing. And I, I got another thought for you, Michael, and you'll be able to help me with this with cognitive psychology. And I noticed this with my children at primary school. My children at primary school and their life seem somewhat confused. 
and a little bit anxious mm. and uncertain, unsure of themselves. And I think that's because they're not being taught. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Can you speak on that a little bit? I I, I yeah, don't want to so, put words I mean, into your I mouth. I think what you might be talking about is this educational philosophy that children have to construct all knowledge for themselves. Yes. And that teachers, you know, as the the education gurus put it, should be guides on the side rather than sages on the stage, uh, which is a, a way of kind of denigrating the role of the teacher. Mm. Because actually, we need to remember that teachers are teachers for a reason. They they hold knowledge that the children don't. And yes. actually, a lot of the time, the best way to impart that knowledge is just to tell it to them rather than have them discover everything for themselves. Look, there's a place for discovery learning. You know, what is a laboratory class in science? But that, yes. but it's within a context, isn't it? It's within the context of a discipline. And there's a whole lot of knowledge that has to be front-loaded before they're well, able to I've benefit taken- from that. As a parent helper, I've sat in on some classrooms at primary school and I've thought that it's just a jumble of information Yeah, that they get taught on a project. You know, we're doing this project. We're off to the museum and look at this and look at that and look at this. And it's a jumble. And yeah. it's not a stepping stone to deeper knowledge. Yeah, And um, you and I would be the last to suggest that we should crush out creativity and innovation and the child's ideas, of course. But you actually have to learn the discipline and you have to learn the alphabet. You have to learn numbers in the times table. Um, well, I'll go basic- further and say that creativity depends on it. Yes. If you don't have knowledge, you have nothing to think critically about. Yes. If you don't have knowledge, you don't know how to be creative. A total lack of constraint is not good for creativity. No. If you want to play a musical instrument, there's a lot of hard yards and learning, you know, the fingering and the notes and all of that. And only when you've mastered that are you able to be truly creative with, with that instrument. So the disciplines are actually what frees out us to be creative in the long run. Isn't that a strange, that's another uh, contradiction that is true. Yeah, seems... well, you need the structure to, to be creative from. Yes. And also, um, you need a certain, you need a structure in order to be tolerant. Uh, yes. Right. Well, t- tolerance doesn't come easily to people. No. And, and this, again, is a very interesting feature, isn't it, that um, we've witnessed and we've learned that we're now living in an era which presents itself as everyone can go off and live their own true self and be their best them and live uh, free to choose. Mm. And yet, because of that, it's, it's, it's the most fascist place you've ever lived in. I fear that you may be right, and it's, it's kind of hard for me to accept that as a, as a classical liberal. Yes, uh, I guess, because I like the idea that people are free to choose. I, I do. I think it's me too. It's, it's much better than um, authoritarianism. I, I would much prefer that people are able to live the life they want. But I do think as well that we probably should do a much better job of disciplining young people so that they make good choices, so that they make ethical choices, so mm. that they make choices that take account of other people's freedom. Uh, as well so well haven't we taught them we're just sort of i think the americans say spitballing isn't it we're just shooting the breeze would be a kiwi saying i wonder if it's that you actually need a value system to engage with people Mm. and you and i understand that people adults can live the life as they choose And we do that at some cost to ourselves because they can be extremely annoying. Their lifestyle choices can annoy us. Yes. Right? But we we shrug and we put up with it because we understand that's what living in a free society is. Yeah. But what we have, we get that, the downside to it. But what we have is a group now growing up who say this is how you should live they don't have an ability to argue that. 
because they haven't been taught any structure. Mm-hmm. So they've got no philosophical or logical basis to arguing a position. And then they'll say, you have to live this way too. Yes, so that, that's where it becomes authoritarian, right? Yes. And so you're living in this free and easy world where you're forced to live that free and easy world. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's. I think you're right. And I think that the structure that we're fa- failing to inculcate is actually the structure of liberality, which is that yes. you, you are free to choose until the point where it's, it can no longer be reciprocal. Mm. So if I make a choice to constrain your freedom, mm-hmm. then that that's beyond the it's beyond the, that horizon of, of Popper's paradox of tolerance, if you will, because yes. now I've impinged on yes. uh, a, a freedom that I afford myself. Mm. I, I, I had a funny one when free speech became a debatable point in New Zealand. I couldn't remember the arguments in favour of free speech. Yeah, you know, because it was not something I'd ever had to argue in my life for. I had exactly the same phenomenon. I oh, remember, how interesting! Yeah, uh, I mean, it was. What did you do? I went and read on liberty. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I read Stewart. that. I read a lot of things. I mean, the, the the wake up call for me was when Don Brash was banned from Massey Campus. Yes, me too. Uh, that it was a moment of extreme outrage for me, and. When I calmed down, I wrote a piece for some media outlet at that time, which which got published. Uh, and after that, I just started to think about uh, free speech from first principles, because yes. like you, I never had. I'd grown up in no. a society where it was a, a given. Yeah. So it, it is actually good for us to have to replenish our thinking about these things. So that, our human capital. Yeah. 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 Well, Michael, um, we're going to have a lot to talk about. We've, we've already talked about quite a lot today. <laughs> yes, and we've hardly got to the ins and outs of the curriculum. Yeah. And I feel as though you may be a very good person, given that your field is psychology, you probably got a understanding of postmodernism. A rudimentary one. I, I've never studied postmodernism as a scholar. I, I came up through a science background. I, yes. I studied mathematics and biology alongside psychology. I did a little bit of humanities, but I, I never encountered postmodernism as a university student. Um, no, neither. And I, I, I stayed firmly away from it because it sounded like gobbledygook to me, you know. Yeah. And Papa had taught me to write clearly. Yes. And um, the Marxists and postmodernisms write obscurely. Certainly the postmodernists do. I, I, I couldn't speak about the Marxists, but, Trust uh, me. you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they write obscurely, and it's sort of dressed up and academic, and it's very appealing if you're a young person. So I never got into it because I thought if they can't explain it, that I can't read it and and grasp Mm. it. And I realized that I was trying to understand why people can think what they think. Why would the Ministry of Education be suggesting this is how you teach science, right? And actually, through this radio station, I got introduced to this whole concept of wokery or postmodernism. And I read a book called Cynical Theories. Oh, yes. Puckrose, Lindsay, and Bogosian. Yeah. Yeah. yeah those two, Puckrose yeah. and Lindsay. And I have to say, I struggled through the book because it was using the language of sociology and the language of wokeism. And it was hard, hard work. I actually read it twice, but I began to glimmer at it um, because it's it's saying that there's no objective world. Yeah, I mean, my, my understanding of it, and and I'm not an expert, so I should uh, issue that disclaimer. Is is that Derrida, the, the French yes. philosopher, was the, possibly the first to make whole sort of full throatedly postmodernist claims, and his idea was that language is uh, how we construct reality. Yes, and, but where he went wrong, to my in my view, is that. He, he seemed to think that it was ungrounded, that there was yes. no 
kind of basis to, to language yes. and reality. And that, of course, is just wrong. Yes. Uh, I mean, language has evolved as a pretty a much organ in, in human beings. It's, it's more than a tool. It's not an invention. It's something that's built into us biologically, yes. the propensity to learn a language. Uh, and, it, and that's because it's an extremely useful thing in the world and it was an adaptive thing for us to do and it, it refers to the world it refers to objects in the world actions in the world and so on and yes there's an abstract end to it where we can talk you know highfalutin philosophy but and that's a wonderful thing but really you know at bottom language is a grounded thing and and it does yeah. bear a relationship to reality or it wouldn't be any use to us and and how wonderful is it that the person that really gave us that idea that grammar there is a there is a DNA code for grammar mm. was Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky, the linguist, yes, yeah, and who's a dirty old comp, but when it comes to science, he was par excellence. He likes free speech as well, so yeah, I, I'm quite willing to listen to his his um, yeah his other and, ideas. And that's the point, isn't it? Because yeah. it was a testable theory, and then they discovered families that were lacking that there was a mix-up in their genes, mm -hmm. and they couldn't talk or learn grammar. Yeah. And they now, I think it's a Fox Pro gene or something. But but the point of it is, when I read that curriculum, it screams postmodernism to me now. Yes, or at least, you know, it's cousin post-structuralism, the, the idea okay. that there's no structure to disciplines that they're arbitrary that, that uh, and you know there's this other idea that science and structured disciplines are a tool of power that they use yes to and i mean it's nonsense but it's it's a very popular idea in in those kinds of political circles well i'll have to disagree with you there too because i saw it as a popular idea but now i see it as driving everything it's certainly broken out of the academy, broken yes. out of the universities and, and metastasized yes. into mainstream society. Uh, I would say most of the, the public institutions are possessed by this ideology. Uh, yes, certainly that's the how. Education is. Uh, yes. If I sat down with my children's primary school teacher and suggested that there was object enough knowledge, they wouldn't, they'd be very polite because they're lovely people. Mm -hmm. Right, but inside and probably in the staff room, they'd have a wee titter and a laugh about this old man who wanders in from the twentieth century, mm. thinking that there could ever be such a thing as objective knowledge. Interesting, isn't it? And yet they drive to work in a car that works That's right. because of the laws of physics That's right. and, and so on. That's right. That's right. Um, and um, but. That's what I mean by it's sort of driving. And, of course, the other clever thing is by their nature, and I'd be interested in you. Maybe we'll, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to have you back, Michael, because I've burbled on. Be a great but, pleasure. Because isn't this this interesting thing? And you would have counted this. How do you debate and discuss the curriculum with these people who don't believe in debate and discussion and objective reality. I, I'm not sure that they'll take much notice of what I have to say about it. I, I, my hope is that teachers, and there are many science teachers out there who are uh, extremely upset by this document, will rebel over it. I want to publicise it to parents so they know what's going on. I'm, I'm sure that a lot of parents would like their children to have a proper education, including a, a proper education in science. and what I'm worried about, actually, is that if a document like this actually becomes the curriculum, and we should be clear, it is in draft at the moment, this, this copy that I got was sent to me by a teacher who had received it from the Ministry for Feedback. It wasn't supposed to go any more widely, but, you know, you could call it a leak if you like it. It leaked it to me and, and I wrote Whistle about blah. it. If you like, yeah, whatever. But, you know, I, I decided that it was absolutely worth publicising so that parents and teachers all knew what's coming down the line so that we can stop it in its tracks. I don't think the ministry will do that of their own accord, but, no. you know, we've got an election coming up and, and you you know, we really want people to think about the education system when they vote. And 
have ask questions of prospective MPs about this, what what they'll support and what they won't support in education. Mm. That's I our was, mechanism for change. I was briefly an associate of Minister of Education, briefly, and I had a um, person seconded to my office, and she was great. She was fantastic. And she said, oh, I'm just going to pop off over to the Kremlin. <laughs> Meaning the Ministry of Education. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, that's hilarious. She's not a joke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I came to realise that it was run like the Kremlin. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kremlin-like approach and ideas. But, Michael, we're talking to Dr. Michael Johnston. We're going to have to call it quits because I've burbled on too much, but we're getting to know uh, Michael. And he has a wonderful insight and a wonderful experience of schooling, just like Professor Elizabeth Rata, who's been also an absolute delight on this program. We will definitely get Michael back because there's so much to discuss. And truthfully, I don't know anything that is going to determine our future more than what we're teaching our kids at school and at university. And if you look at what we're teaching our kids at school and at university now and proposed with this leak, it doesn't look good, Michael, does it? It's not looking good, too good at the moment. So, again, you know, hold your, hold your politicians to account. Yes. And, and we can find out more from Michael, and you can find out what he's writing. It's, he's a he's a terrific writer, so you can read it and understand it. He 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 is Popperian in his clarity and precision with the way he writes, and you can find that along with other good uh, insightful analysis at the New Zealand Initiative's webpage. So just Google New Zealand Initiative. They're not banned; they still appear at the top of your Google search, and there's good stuff here. Uh, Michael's keeping it coming. He's got uh, more stuff coming out, as he explained, along with Prof Rata. Dr. Johnson, it's been a wonderful blessing to have you share uh, your time with us and your knowledge. It's been an absolute pleasure, Rodney, and mm. I would love to do it again. Well, that's a date, and we'll talk more popper. That was Dr. Michael Johnson uh, from the New Zealand Initiative. What a wonderful job they're doing. This is a, a think tank of, I don't know, probably half a dozen, eight or nine staff across all these fields of government with bureaucracies numbering in the thousands of people and on a shoestring budget uh, with businesses that are prepared to support policy for the good of the country because they feel that having a good and prosperous, informed country is good for business. And that's absolutely true. Not a particular business, but good for society and good for a prosperous society and good for business. So we're very lucky to have the New Zealand Initiative. You're on uh, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. This is Radley Check Radio. Oh, Please send us an email, inbox at radicheck.radio. You can text us at 2057. Um, send us anything. I love the feedback. And also, I'm sure you can go on the New Zealand Initiative and you can interact with uh, Michael directly or send stuff through to him. But I will always forward anything on that you send me. Uh, thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.